Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. As always, we thank our generous sponsors, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in memory of David Grossman, Lili Nishmas, David Ben, Menachem, Manish. This morning's shir is also sponsored by Judith Rosen, Judy Rosen, in memory of Rabbi Marvin Rosen, Eli Melech Baruch Ben Ben Sion, whom I remember very well. Neshama should have an aliyah. Also dedicated by Carol Lerman to Rabbi Goldberg for his enthusiasm, wit, genuine love for Hashem, good looks, charm. No, he didn't. <laughs> She didn't say that. That's just, I assume it was meant as well. So I put that in. Thank you so much. That's very generous and kind. And by Karen Strulowitz, in memory of Ira Lulinsky, whose year site was the 14th of Shabbat. Thank you so much to all of our generous uh, sponsors. Of course, our learning is always for Chaya Esther Tehila Basari Yatsipora, that Hashem should show her love and kindness and her parents' tremendous strength. Pasha Sisra, page 394. We are now transitioning from the Jewish people as a slave nation. Jewish people who are subjugated, oppressed, and persecuted in the hands of others, Paro and the Mitzrim, and now they are beginning to forge their own destiny. They have now been taken out. Bishalach Paro, Paro sent them, Hashem took them, but now they're out. They're out of Mitzrayim. They're trying to take Mitzrayim out of them, and that is a big part of the rest of Sefer Shmos. They are geographically out of Mitzrayim, but how does Hashem take Mitzrayim out of them? An assimilated people, a cultured people, a people whose values are still uh, influenced by their Egyptian hosts whom they had spent centuries with and it can mold it and shape them in so many ways. How do they get away? So we begin. This is a parsha named for a non-Jew, but he's no ordinary non-Jew. Yisra was an exceptional individual. Someone who had studied comparative religion, who had experimented with every form of relationship or connection to God, a God, and he came to the correct conclusion. He was the first what we call Jew by choice. He made the choice. He wasn't born into it. He wasn't forced into it. He was made the choice to join it. And in that way, he becomes the eyes and ears of the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu begs him to stay later in the Torah. Don't go. Don't go. You represent such a refreshing perspective. You chose this. You weren't obligated. You weren't forced or coerced. You weren't born into it. You chose it. And we need to keep you around. We need to have you around. Yisro excels at this character trait that is the very opening word of our parsha. We're not going to delve into it today. We have discussed it at length in the past, and you can find it online. But his main character trait, what is it that pre predisposes him to ultimately land and be in that place of wanting to join the Jewish people? Vayishma Yisro. Yisro excels at something which is an increasingly lost art in our time, and that is he's an exceptional listener. He's an active listener, not a passive listener. He knows how to listen. He knows how to hear. And because he listens and he hears, he hears things beneath the surface. He doesn't just read the same headlines as everyone else, but he understands the depth of what's going on. And it moves him. It moves him quite literally. It moves him to move to join the Jewish people. That's the opening Rashi. Mashmu Hashama Uba. Because the Pasuk itself tells us what Yisro heard. All that God had done for Moshe and the Jewish people. That God took the Jewish people out of Egypt. So what do you mean? What's Rashi's question? What did he hear that made him come? The text itself gives us the answer. Why would Rashi leave it as an open question? The commentators point out, Rashi was not bothered by what did he hear? Everyone heard. Everywhere in the world they heard. It was the headline. It was the front page. It was the cover story. It was the banner. It was everything. Everyone heard. What was the difference between Yisro and everyone else? Everyone else 
sipped their coffee, ate their cereal, and turned the page of the newspaper. Mashmua Shama Bayisro heard Uba, and he got up and he said, Wow, there is something extraordinary happening. There's something special happening. And there's a big debate. What did he hear? Was it the splitting of the sea? Was it the giving of the Torah? Was it the war with Amalek? What did he hear? But he heard something that made him say, There's something unusual going on. I need to join these people. I need a closer look. I need to see what's really happening. There's something bigger than me and us and here and now, and I want to be part of it. I want to understand it. I want to experience it. I want a front row seat to it. And he gets up and he goes, Mashma Shama Uba, one of the big lessons of Parshish Yisro is not to be a spectator in life, not to watch and understand and inculcate superficially, but to plumb the depths, to analyze and evaluate, to seek, to really listen, to understand and to be moved, to change, to grow, to transform as a result, not to be static or stagnant, and not to read the newspaper or the news as an outsider. Massive earthquakes in Turkey, more than 5,000 people killed. Horrific tragedy. What does that mean? What is its message? What are we meant to do? How are we meant to react? When something significant happens, it should it should shake us. And that's why Yisra maybe appears before Matan Torah, even if chronologically he only arrived after, because one of the 48 ways the Torah is acquired is Shmias HaOzen, the capacity to listen. If you only listen superficially, if you come to the partial here and you play on your phone in the meantime, you tune out in the meantime, you take a nap in the middle of it in the meantime, then you're going to come out and the messages, they're not mine, but the messages of our sacred Torah and our great teachings, they're not going to move you or shake you. They're not going to improve you or repair you. They're not going to redeem you. But if like Yisro, we excel and we grow in Shmiyah Sa'ozim, that's one of the 48 ways Torah is acquired, to be a good listener. You have to listen. Listen to the messages. Listen to the people speaking. Listen to the way the world and nature are speaking. Hashem, through all of that, is speaking to us literally. And that's what we're not speaking about of Pashas Yisro at the very beginning. So where are we starting? Perikilches, Pasuk, Zayin. So Yisro is moved. He comes. He arrives with Tzipora and their two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Only now are we given their names. And Moshe is told, he says, tell Moshe, I, your father-in-law, I'm coming. Prepare. And your wife and my two and your two sons, they're with me. Moshe goes out to greet his father-in-law. He bows down. He kisses him. They exchange greetings. And they come to the tent. And now Moshe begins to tell him, you're not going to believe what's been going Since I last saw you, you won't believe what's been happening. I have to fill you in. Let's start off right away with an Wow, what an entourage. Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't go to greet him all alone. Moshe doesn't say to the Chevra, I'll be back in a minute. I got to go pick up my shver from the airport. Moshe Rabbeinu takes an enormous entourage. Moshe Rabbeinu brings a huge group with him to be able to go and to greet his father-in-law. Aaron, Nadav, Aviu, the 70 elders. Some say the Aaron itself went with them. The Medrash says, So the Medrash says, not only did all of these people, not only was there a major greeting, Lahavdil, Lahavdil, the diplomatic mission lands, there's the red carpet, there are the trumpets, and there are the corresponding diplomats on the other side. 
all the layers of the administration. Does it, okay, you landed. Shkoyach. We'll meet at the palace. We'll meet at the White House. We'll meet at the residence. We'll meet, what's the whole pomp and circumstance of the greeting, of the meeting? What's that really all about? Because that shows honor. There's an honor guard. It's honor. It's dignity. So Moshe goes out, doesn't go out alone. He brings a big group with him. Maybe even the Aron. Maybe even the Aron. What do you mean the Aron? What Aron? When did he come? Before, after? The Aron. Maybe Yesh Omrim. So it's a plus a Torah digs up. I never heard of it. A sefer called Otsar Yad Hachayim, written by Yisachar Dov, based in somewhere. And he says, Are you allowed to remove the Torah in order to greet a non Jewish priest? Otsar plus a Torah, Chasidashiyir in Borah Park. This is not Ephraim Goldberg. Nobody has to call all the controversy back. This is not me. This is Otsar plus a Torah. Who says, what do you see from here? At the time that Yisro arrived, he wasn't a Ger Tzedek. When Yisro first came, he wasn't a righteous convert. When Yisro first came, his beard and payas hadn't grown in yet. He wasn't wearing a yarmulke yet. When Yisro first arrived, he is a priest of Midian who had experimented with every religion in the world. And yet, such dignity, such honor is bestowed upon him, maybe even the Aaron going out. And what do you see from here, says the Otsu Yad Achayim? You see, Mutal Lahotzi say for Torah, Lekabah Pene Komer Goy, not only was he non-Jewish, at the time he was a priest, and they brought the, you could bring the Torah out of the ark in order to go greet, in order to make a parade, in order to welcome. we all heard of. It's the president's visiting. If a non-Jewish great world dignitary or leader is visiting, you could take the Torah out of the Aron in order to be able to emphasize how significant, how important, how big a moment it is. Chinuch writes, So Pischei Tshuva in Shulchan itself, beginning of Simon Reish Pei quotes this, L'halacha, you could take the Torah out of the Ark in order to welcome a non-Jewish leader, non-Jewish dignitary, even a priest, a shul, could host a priest and bring a Torah out to show honor if they're coming to advance and support the Jewish interest. Enough said. I don't need to go any further there. Perak Yudches Pasuk Yud. Those who know, know. Those who don't know, God bless you. You're lucky. Vayomer Yisro. Perak Pasuk Yud. Pasuk 10. Vayomer Yisro. Baruch Hashem Asher Itzilas Chamiyad Mitzrayim Amiyad Paro Asher Itzilas Hamitachas Yad Mitzrayim. Comes along Yisro and he says, Wow, Baruch Hashem. Yisro doesn't just join the people, the Jewish people. He joins a girl's seminary in the Jewish people. Baruch Hashem, Mirz Hashem, Chaste Hashem. All of a sudden, Yisro is talking like a Jew. A minute ago, he was the non-Jewish priest who we were taking the Torah out for him. And now, he's offering a huge Baruch Hashem. What do you see from this Baruch Hashem? The Gemara Sanhedrin, Sadi Dalad. Genayu l'moshu l'shishim ribosh l'omru Baruch Hashem at Sheba Yisro v'omru Baruch Hashem. Wow. What a disgrace for the Jewish people that all 600,000, which really translated to two to three million people, Moshe and Aaron, the Shivim Zakanim, nobody had said Baruch Hashem until Yisro, this non Jew, arrives, shows up on the scene, finds out what happened, hears the stories of the miracles, and says, Wow, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. The Kasha, all of the Mepharshim ask, What do you mean nobody, not Moshe, not Aaron, not the Shivim Zakanim? What do you mean no another two to three million people said Baruch Hashem? What did we just read last week? What did we just sing in last week's Parsha? 
We sang the Shira, Az Yashir Moshe. Miriam and the women, they danced, they played their instruments. The men, they sang the Az Yashir. What do you mean no one said Baruch Hashem until Yisro came? Didn't they all say the Shira? Didn't they all say the Shira? So my good friend Rabbi Merzov shared with me an incredible Tefer Shlema. Incredible Tefer Shlema, Shlema Radamsk. He says the following. This is an amazing idea. It was worth coming just for this idea. It's worth knowing Merzov just for this idea. You know what Yisro introduced that nobody had done until then? It's true the Jewish people sang Shira. It's true there were those who came before Yisro who said, Baruch Hashem, thank you Hashem. But until now, everyone said thank you Hashem. You know why they said thank you Hashem? You know what moved them and motivated to say thank you Hashem? You know for whom they were saying thank you Hashem? For themselves. Hashem, you made a miracle. Hashem, it worked out. Hashem, we got good news. Hashem, the results came in and everything's benign. Everything's good. Everyone's healthy. Hashem, thank you, Hashem. Everyone sang it. Thank you, Hashem, for me. My child. My grandchild. Thank you, my parnasa, My health. My fertility. My shidduch. My family simcha. Who was the first who said, thank you, Hashem, for what you did for him? Yisra was the first who showed up. He says, I, I was watching from home. I don't know if he watched Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. I don't know what, Mr. well, I'm not going to say. I don't know which one he watched. I don't know which one he watched. But he said, I saw the news. So everyone else, that's nice for them. Good for the Jews. They got away again. Good for the Jews. It worked out again for them. Yisra doesn't say that. He says, Baruch Hashem. You did something amazing for someone else. Baruch Hashem. Tzadikim, righteous people. The relationship with Hashem, both when they beg and they plead and they daven, and when they say thank you, does not come from a place of, does not come from a place of for me. It comes from Hashem, you're amazing. And when I see you being amazing, whether it's for me or whether it's for someone else, I say thank you, Hashem, no matter what. Yisra was the first to introduce that. The Jewish people we know, this is the parsha of Achdos. We're going to see it in a few ways today. One of which is the most famous. It's in the logo of the great Boca Raton synagogue. It describes the Jewish people in the singular. They encamped. They, but not they in the plural, they in the singular, encamped opposite the mountain. Because we were like one people with one heart. Eight minyanim on a Shabbos morning. Nusuch this, nusuch that, nusuch the other thing, this yarmulke, that hair covering, no hair covering, driving here from from birth. All different types of Jews. Maybe you see differences. We only see similarities. We're part of one big happy family. Maybe brothers or sisters emerge to be different, different lives, lifestyles, different hashkafas. But all we see is that we're brothers and sisters. All we see is that we're united as one family. All we have is our achtas. So that was a prerequisite to Kabbalah's Torah. Before Hashem could give the Torah, He had to see us be one, live as one, feel as one. We had to be one. We had to function as one. That's why, what's the Birchas Torah? What's the order of the Birchas Torah? Asher barchabana mikola amim, benasan lano as Torah so. First, be a people. Asher barchabana mikola amim. Be a people, be a family, love one another, and then I'll give you the Torah. But I'm not going to give you the Torah for you to weaponize it. I'm not going to give you the Torah 
for you to divide with it. I'm not going to give you the Torah to feel judgmental, superior, holier than thou, critical. That's not why I'm giving you the Torah. Be united, be one, function as a family, a functional family. Love one another, and I'm going to give you the Torah to further unite and to enrich and to elevate and to elevate. Arvas, what's an arev? An arev is a guarantor, and what is a guarantor? You go to the bank and you want to take out a loan, but you have terrible credit. So you come to me and you say, will you sign as a guarantor on the loan? I say, sure. What am I signing when I'm a guarantor on the loan? If you default, if you don't pay, who do they come to? They come to me. Hopefully you pay and it doesn't affect me and iota. But if you don't, I've got your back. If you don't, it will cost me and I'm willing to put my neck on the line. I'm willing to put skin in the game. I'm willing to have your back. When I daven for myself, it's obvious I'm davening. Why? It's my need. I go to the doctor, I go to the lawyer, I go to the financial advisor, and I go to Hashem because it's my need. I have to take the steps, I have to take the initiative, I have to do the things that I need because it's my need. But when I go to Hashem and it's for you, I'm going as a guarantor. Hashem, make them healthy, don't make them healthy. I like having them around, I prefer having them around, but it doesn't impact my longevity. But I'm going because I care about them, I'm their guarantor, I have their back. I'm protesting, I'm objecting, I'm begging, I'm asking, I'm thanking. Because I care. I have their back. Pasuk and Shir Hashirim, the second parak says, Hashmi'ini es kolech. Hear my voice. Ki kolech arev. Hear your voice because your voice is arev. What does the word arev mean in that context? What is Shlomo Melch saying? Hashmi'ini es kolech ki kolech arev. Arev means sweet. It means sweet. Jewish people are guarantors one for the other, and when we guarantee one another, we sweeten each other's lives. Jews are meant to make each other's lives sweeter. All too often, we make each other's lives more bitter. Bitter resentment, bitter complaints, bitter envy, bitter jealousy, bitter judgment. But we're not supposed to bitter one another's lives. We are here to sweeten one another's lives. How can I make your life sweeter? How can I make your experience sweeter? How can I relieve your suffering and replace it with sweetness? Sweetness, ki kolech arev. Kolech arev also means, when does Hashem listen to us, to our tfilos? Not when the tfila is for ourselves and about ourselves. When does He listen to us? Ki kolech arev. When we're using our voice as a guarantee for the other. So Hashem, I'd like to talk to you, not about me, not about my children. I want to talk to you about my neighbor. I want to talk to you about my friend. I want to talk to you about someone in my community I'm not even so close with, but we're all rallying around. When we use our kolech, when we use our voice to be an arev, to be a guarantor, that's when Hashem listens. And that's what Yisro introduced to the world. Moshe tells Yisro the whole story. You won't believe it. It's incredible what happened. And then we got stuck and we thought it was all over and all of a sudden the sea opened up. You won't believe it. And what does Yisro say? It's nice for you. Those things never happened to me. He wasn't Jewish, so he didn't say that. He said, that's amazing. That's amazing. Baruch Hashem, Asher Eitzil Wow, that's incredible. Baruch Hashem. He saved you from the Egyptians. So I'm so happy for you. Hashem, thank you so much for saving these people that I'm not yet part of. But thank you so much. So that's incredible. That's what he introduced. He 
He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't born a Jew. He wasn't yet a Jew. Nevertheless, was, thank you for what you did for me. was, thank you for what you did for another. And he was the first to do that. That's what he introduced to the world. And that, that's more precious to Hashem. That's more beloved to Hashem. That Hashem listens to. And that Hashem cares about many multifold. Now the basis of the Ger Rebbe added to this. And the Ger Rebbe said, it's more than that. Yisro was one of the advisors of Paro. We know the Medrash tells us that Paro had three advisors. Yisro, who knows the others? Eov, Bilam. So Yisro was one of Paro's advisors. It's not just that Yisro showed the capacity to be happy for someone else, to worry about someone else. It's that Yisro did that when he could have been happy for himself. He could have and should have had the same demise as Paro. He was a member of Paro's cabinet. If Paro and his cabinet all went down, he should have gone down with them. And he should have been thankful for, thank you, Baruch Hashem, you saved my life. But he didn't. Nevertheless, he could have and should have been happy for himself. To be happy for someone else when it had nothing to do with you is amazing. To be happy for someone else when you could have and should have been happy even for yourself, wow, that's remarkable. That's extraordinary. This is a midah that we learned from Yisro. It is something outstanding. We spoke about this last year or two years ago. Yisro comes and what does he do now? He's ready to be a Jew. Because how does he celebrate all these miracles? With lunch. With dinner. It's time for a meal. It's time for a suda. So Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, so interesting how the Pasha keeps identifying him that way as if I could forget how short is our memory from the opening Pasuk that we can't remember that Yisro is Moshe's father-in-law. He has to keep the Torah, has to keep identifying him that way. So Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, in case you forgot, brings Olo Zvachim to God. Aaron and Zikne Yisrael come to break bread with Chosein Moshe, Lifneha Elokim. And last year, two years ago, we spoke about this more at length. Why? What is the role of the Gashmanis, of the food? What's it doing over here? Why now? But the Ramban says something amazing. What's our plus? Our Torah quotes the Ramban. You know what this suda, what this meal was? This was the bris mila meal. Mustama bagels, cream cheese, and lox. It was a proper bris. It was fleshiks. I don't know if they splurged on the amlakai, but it was the bris meal of who? Who's bris? Yisro. The Ramban writes. This was not immediately. This was after he was with them first for several days. And he converted through Brismila and going in the mikvah and bringing these korbanos. He was the chasan damim. He was the chasan of blood, which is not under the chuppah, it's years earlier, at the Brismila. And this was his Brismil. Chasam Sofer is bothered by it. And his drushim ba'agados. He says, the Taz tells us, why do we make a Shalom Zachar on Friday night? The Ramah quotes the Menagin Yoradeya, Simeresh Samachai. 
And the Taz gives the reason. What's the reason for a Shalom Zachar? An excuse to go out, drink, eat, chickpeas, arbus. Why do we have a Shalom Zachar on Friday night? Mashal Amalach, Shagaz of Amar Kolachsanain, Achsanain, Shishkan, La Yeru Panai, Achiru Panea Matrona Tchila. Kacham Rakashbarch, Losavila Fane Korban, Achatavor Alav Shabbos. Ain Zayn Yam, Blo Shabbos, Vain Mila Blo Shabbos. This baby, before he can enter the bris of Avram Avinu, before this little baby enters the covenant of the Jewish people, they have to first experience a Shabbos. So we go on that Friday night to have an Onik Shabbos. Let's go enjoy and celebrate and mark this Shabbos that the baby's experiencing. Many, many, many reasons are given. This is the Taz's reason. Chassam Sofer is bothered on the Ramban. How could this meal be the meal of the bris of Yisro? Yisro just arrived a couple days earlier. You can't make a bris without a Shalom Zacher. Where was the Shalom Zacher? Where was the Shalom Zacher? Do you have to make a Shalom Zacher for a convert before you schedule their conversion? The Friday night before the scheduled conversion of the of the, of the the convert. Do you make a Shalom Zacher for him? It's a funny question of the Chassam Sofer. And there's a big discussion we won't get into now. But maybe the fact that Hashem, the Hashras Hashchina, he had a Kabbalah's Pnei Chachamim, is like Kabbalah's Pnei Hashchina. So that took the place of Shabbos and it took the place of what it's supposed to represent. An interesting exchange that takes place over here. But there's a, a custom some have. Minag nifla eitzel b'nei edus Tunis ve'ashazir. The Jews of Tunis and Ashazir. She'orchen se'uda b'yom chamishi pashas Yisro. Minikre sa'uda se'udas Yisro. I didn't get an email or WhatsApp about this yet. Like Parshas Haman last week on Tuesday. I got 400. But apparently there is a custom, the Jews of Tunisia, to make a meal of Yisro on the Thursday of Parshas Yisro. Good news, there's still time. Today's only Tuesday. There's a minag on Thursday, this Thursday. Have a nice lunch. And it's the Sudas Yisro. What's the reason? Where does it originate from, this minag of the Jews of Tunisia? A Sudas Yisro on the Thursday of Parshas Yisro. So he brings three reasons. Number one, this is in the Chuvas Vayeshev Yosef, who quotes all these customs. So this is the Pasha of Yisro to commemorate this meal that he had. We make a meal. Number two, this parsha has the story of Harsinai and the Asaras Adibras were given. We don't want to wait till Shavuos. This is the parish of Kabbalah Satorah. We don't want to wait till Shavuos to celebrate that we receive the Torah and Aserah Debros. So we make a Sudas Yisro to celebrate Parshas Yisro. And number three, There was a terrible epidemic, a pandemic in Tunisia. And many died. And Eliyahu Navi came and told a particular woman that she needs to shecht a dove. And the pandemic stopped. I wish we had learned this during Corona. We should collectively be making a suda soda. I think even administration declared the end of Corona now. We should be a suda soda. So the Jews of Tunisia had suffered a plague, an epidemic, a pandemic. They marked a suda soda. It was Parshas Yisrael, so the Thursday that is Sudas Yisrael. But anyway, there is that custom, interesting custom among the Jews of, of Yisrael. So Yisrael comes, and until now, amazing things to say about Yisrael. But now he acts like a father-in-law. And how does he act like a father-in-law? I say this recognizing mine is in the room. How does he act like a father-in-law? I'm, I'm on the father-in-law team now, so I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to talk like this. 
ויאמר חוסיין משה אליו, לא טוב הדבר אשר אתה עושה. How does Yisrael now begin to act like a father-in-law? Two words. Unsolicited advice. Not my father-in-law. He's the best. I solicit his advice all the time. He's a fantastic advisor. But Yisrael offers unsolicited advice. Until now, this is also how it goes, right? It's a nice meal. Took you out for dinner. Everyone's enjoying. And all of a sudden, the father-in-law has to start to talk about what are the plans, what's your future, I'm concerned with the kids, what you're doing with this, your choice about that. And the kids are like, can we bench and get out of here? Thanks, no thanks for the meal. Who needed the meal? So Moshe's sitting down breaking bread with his father-in-law. This fleish, they're eating meat. Olos is vachem. It's a proper fleishic dinner they went out for. And all of a sudden, Yisra's offering this unsolicited advice. Now here's where Moshe acts out of character, where he says, can I please have another? Moshe says, that's fantastic. Keep talking. Give me more advice. So what's Yisra's advice? Lo tova This is no good what you're doing. This can't work. This is unsustainable. This is not doable. This is not doable. I, I recently heard Jordan Peterson talk about Sefer Shmos. I don't know if you're a fan, not a fan, but he had some brilliant insight into the book of Exodus. And he talked about it, how the escape from tyranny and the transition not to create another tyrannical infrastructure of government now as a free people. And that's what Yisrael's concern was, that you're going to place one tyrant with another. If anyone defers and submits to you, and you're the bottom line that everything comes to, you need to democratize, you need to create hierarchy, you need to empower the people. And the only way to escape tyranny is by empowering the people. A fascinating, fascinating perspective. You can find it and listen to it on your own. But Yisrael says it's unsustainable. You can't do it. You can't be with everyone and solve everyone's problems. One person can't handle it all. It's unsustainable. So you need to diversify. You need to spread out. You need to empower. You need to deputize. You need to appoint other judges, and only the most difficult will come to you. Rav Sternbach in his Tambadas has a fantastic insight here. Rav Sternbach in his Tambadas says the following. He says, Now is when Yisrael begins to speak. Now is when we begin to listen. Now, go back to the beginning of the parasha. This is the first words Yisrael says. What are his first words? Three opening words are, Lo tov hadavar. This is no good. This is no good. Those are Yisrael's three opening words. When Yisrael first speaks, that's how we're introduced to him. First three words he says are, Lo tov hadavar. This is no good. Go back to the beginning of the parasha. Rashi tells us that Yisrael had many names. Rashi tells us that Yisrael had many names. Yisro, Shiva Shemas Nikrulo. He had seven names. Ru'uel, Yeser, Yisro, Chovev, Chever, Kene, Uputiel. Yeser, his name was Yisro, comes from Yeser. Why was his name Yisro from Yeser? Hashem She Yeser, Parsha Achas, Betorah. He merited a Parsha being added to the Torah. There's a Parsha that has his name. And what's the Parsha that he added? The Ata Techeze. So Rashi quotes him and says, What did Yisro merit? that a Parsha's name for him, because he spoke and he said, V'ata techazeh. Go back to where we were. When did he say V'ata techazeh? Pasuk Yitzayin. Lo tov First he says, this is no good. Nevoti bo gamata gama amazah sharimach. It's bad for you. It's bad for the people. Ki chavei bimcha This is too heavy for you. Lo suchal. You can't do it. Ata shema bekoli. Listen to what I have to say. He goes on and on and on. Pasuk haval finally says, V'ata techazeh mikola aman shechayel. Until now he's been identifying the problem. And then he pivots. And Yisra says, it's too much and you can't handle it. And you're going to crumble. You're going to fall apart. You look terrible. It's like all the people who see my wife in the supermarket, they mean well. They're like, your husband looks horrible. He's not taking care of himself. You need to take care of him. He looks absolutely terrible. 
Anyway, I appreciate the love. Thank you. So Yisro tells Moshe, you can't sustain this. It's terrible. You're going to fall apart. You're going to crumble. You can't do it all on your own. And then finally, he gets to the solution. Give a kick. Look. Go look among the people and find You need to bring in more help. You got to find people. You got to be able to make it better. When Rashi at the beginning of the parsha says one of the names, seven names is Yisra. Why? For Yeser. And why Yeser? Because there's an extra parsha. And why is there an extra parsha? Because Yisra said something. And what did Yisra say? What would you have expected Rashi to tell us? The first three words that Yisra said, which were Lotov Hadavar. But that's not what Rashi quotes. Rashi doesn't quote the first three words that Yisra says, Lotov Hadavar. What does Rashi quote? You know why Yisra married his own parsha? Because he said two words. Why? Says of Sternbach, I love this. Says of Sternbach, you don't praise or admire someone because they could point out a problem. That's easy to do. Anyone could see the problems. You know what you praise and admire a person for? When they offer a solution. The sakein hadavar. You don't praise someone, you don't admire someone, you don't name a parsha after someone because they identified a problem. Problems we can all identify. Talk about it at our Shabbos tables, we talk about it to our friends, we talk about it during davening, we complain about it, we write anonymous emails about it. Problems, that's easy. Everyone, cowards, everyone can identify the problem. But to come forward and say, I'm concerned with the kiddush, the shalashudas, we're not doing enough for the youth, the empty nester, I'm, I, there's something that needs work in the school, the teacher, the stem, the gemara, the rebbe. Problems everybody could see. But when you come and you say, Lotova davar, there's something no good going on, and I have a solution, and I want to be part of the solution, and I'd like to volunteer to chair the committee to be the solution, then we name a parsha after you. Then we name a parsha. Pointing out a problem? Eh, we don't name nothing after you. But you come up with a solution, then we name a parsha after you. And then he quotes, he says, I heard Admar Migur. He says, I heard Chidush Arim. At this convention in Warsaw, they were speaking critically of the Aguda. They're not doing enough for the Jews of Israel. So the Ger Rebbe said, don't sit here pointing fingers. Don't sit here critical. Don't sit here complaining unless you got a solution. Don't point fingers and blame. Don't be critical unless you're offering a solution, unless you're offering to be part of the solution. Yisur gets a parsha named after him. Why? Because of the atat not because of Lotov Davar, that's easy. Perkutes Pasuk Dalad. Turn the page. Perkutes. List of requirements for leadership. Moshe accepted Yisro's advice and followed through on it. And now we get to Har Sinai. The Jews arrive at Har Sinai and Hashem makes a proposal to them. Pasuk Dalad. Hey, look at Jews, my precious children, Tyre Kinda. You saw what happened in Egypt. I've borne you on the wings of eagles and I brought you to me. Now, if you listen to my voice, and you keep my covenant, 
and you tie a red bendel around your wrist. No, that's not what it means. Visimli segula. It's not what it means. Visimli segula mikola amen means you keep tarek mitzvos. What makes you a treasured people among all the nations is that you don't believe in silly narishkite superstition ridiculousness. Kili you believe in me. Keep tarek mitzvos daven to me. Don't believe in ridiculous, silly horoscopes. So these beautiful psukim, these two beautiful psukim, I carry you on the wings of eagles and I bring you close to me. Listen to my voice, keep my covenant, and you'll be a nation of Segula. The whole land, the whole earth is mine. Beautiful song by Simcha Liner. My buddy Simcha Liner, if you don't know his, I will save you from singing it right now. So Rashi explains what's going on with this metaphor. Hashem says, I'm going to carry you on the wings of eagles. Beautiful. Great metaphor. Very poetic. What does it mean? Why did Hashem invoke Davka this metaphor? What is he getting at? What does it mean? So Rashi famously says, Rashi famously says, Like an eagle. Where does an eagle carry the fledglings? Where does the eagle carry its young? On top of its wing. All the other birds carry the young underneath. They grasp in their claws, they carry them underneath. All other birds, they fly low. The other birds fly above them. If they were to put their children on their wing, the birds above them could attack them, they'd be vulnerable. But the eagle flies, soars the highest. Has no fear other than the human being could shoot an arrow. So therefore, its children are not vulnerable above. There's no one above it. The children are only vulnerable below. So the eagle carries its youth above the wing. Let me take the arrow. I'll absorb the blow. Let me protect the child, the children, who are riding on my wings. I did the same thing. Protecting you. The image of on the wings of eagle, is Hashem says, I'm protecting you. The Targum Yonason says, this is not a physical event. Targum Yonason in our parsha says, this is a metaphysical one. If you look at the Targum Yonason, Wow. Targum Yonason says, that long before the invention of the plane, and long before Richard Branson and Elon Musk and everyone else were taking their space shuttles into space. The wings of eagles was a metaphor for expeditious travel, the ability to go somewhere really quickly, like the old Concorde. Someone told me now that there's an airline coming out with a plane that'll take you to Israel from here in three and a half hours. I don't know, it goes 12,000 miles on that. I, I don't know what the speed is. So Hashem was telling them, even when you were yet in Egypt, even while you were in Egypt, I wanted you, while you were yet in Egypt, before you were yet free, I wanted you to be in Yerushalayim for one night. How do I get you there for one night? A Kanfei Nisharim, Concord, this new plane, whatever it's going to be called, the shuttle, spaceship. Kishborcho, a Kanfei Nisharim says the Targum Yonasan is a metaphor. I got you to Yerushalayim on a spaceship. I took you to the Makam Mikdash. You offered the Karban Pesach. Then I brought you back. You were back in Mitzrayim. Then we finished the story and I set you free. And we are meant to invoke this beautiful metaphor each Seder night that no matter what exile we are in, we are transported the night of the Seder to Yushalayim. We're in the Beis Mikdash. 
we're bringing the carbon Pesach. And when the Seder ends, and we finish Chad Gadya, whoever's left standing, we're back in Gullus. But for the Seder night, we're rich and we're free and we're dignified and we are royalty. For the Seder night, he again expeditiously transports us to Yerushalayim. We're bringing the carbon Pesach. We're back in the Beis HaMikdash. No matter the challenging environment, no matter our circumstances, Hashem lifts us for a night and He carries us to a place of redemption, the place that He connects with us. Write that down for your Seder because it's a magnificent way to open the Seder. Whatever's going on in our family's life, whatever's going on in the world around us, whatever is the harshness and darkness of exile, family, chevra, for the next few hours for the Seder night, we are transported to another place. We are in Yerushalayim. We're in the world to come. We're in the most of the time of Mashiach. We're in a place of redemption. And then if we need to, we'll come back. But we're being transported on the wings of eagles for the next few hours to celebrate the Seder night. It's magnificent. You're all too panicked over the fact that I said Pesach to even hear what a beautiful image that is and write it down. You don't want to write down because then you'd be admitting that it's almost Pesach. But there's a third interpretation. We saw Rashi, and that's the Targum Yonason. But I want to tell you a third interpretation, which is amazing. I'll blow you away. From Shal Alter, the Gerer Rashishiva. It's an amazing interpretation. That's what I want to share with you. The Yerushalmi, the Gemara and the Yerushalmi, Avodazara Perkimel. The Yerushalmi relates an astounding episode. Alexander of Macedonia, Alexander the Great, after he succeeded in conquering the world, he, not unlike the billionaires of today, remember a couple years ago, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, who's the guy who started Amazon? Bezos, they were all competing to build their own spaceships and go to space as private, right? The billionaires of today. Why? It's so interesting how the more, more things change, the more they stay the same. Alexander the Great and Elon Musk, they conquered the whole world. They have more money than, they have $200 billion. We don't begin to understand what that means. So once you conquer the whole world, what's left? All that's left is to conquer space. It's not a new phenomenon. Richard, it's not a new phenomenon that the billionaires of today have this itch, this urge. Alexander the Great had it thousands of years ago too. He rode the back of a great eagle and he held a pole in his hand with half an ox's carcass dangling from above the eyes of the eagle. And the bird, he kept lifting this pole with the carcass, the eyes of the eagle, and the eagle kept therefore soaring higher and higher and higher and higher until this enormous bird, this is a Gemara Yerushalmi, Avodah Zar Perkimel, tells us that this eagle, this huge eagle, lifted, lifted Alexander the Great into the heavens. Now when Richard Branson looked down at earth, he said, quote, how you feel when you look down on earth is impossible to put into words. It's indescribable beauty. Jeff Bezos, reacting to his space journey, said, quote, when you get up above it, it's this tiny little fragile thing. And we move about the planet, we're damaging it. What did Alexander the Great say when he got up there? What did he say? The Yerushalmi tells us he looked down on earth and he was utterly unimpressed. He saw it as this tiny, small orb, this little orb he had fully conquered. Right From down here, it all looks so big and it looks endless. But from up there, it's like a little marble. It's a gornish, it's a nothing. And in fact, that's why, says the Yerushalmi, statues of Alexander often depict him with a ball in his hand. It's a symbol that he once held the whole world in his hand. He had conquered the whole world, and statues of Alexander the Great, the, the globe in his hand, are not because he had conquered the world, but because it appeared to him only as that size, 
when he did space travel, when he took the eagle all the way up to space. Now, Alexander's reaction is exactly the opposite of how we're meant to feel, of what we're most supposed to react. When we see how small Earth is in the scheme of the universe and the cosmos, we shouldn't say, wow, it's nothing and we're great, we're everything. But rather, we should feel smaller, in less control, and less in charge. When we see how small everything is, we should recognize that life on little Earth, while it feels like it's everything, it's just a tiny part of the greater universe. What feels so consequential, what feels so important, what feels we have such control of, is small and fleeting. What is grand and lasts like the heavens and the world to come are what matters most. The things we perceive as significant and great down here, the tall skyscrapers and buildings and the magnificent feats and discovery and breakthrough of science and engineering and technology and human skill, they're only impressive from the perspective and on the scale of our small, mortal, human, finite, frail brain. But in the larger scheme of things, in comparison with the glory of heaven of Shemaim, everything is insignificant as the dust of the earth. You have this, says of Shoal Alta, the great Rosh Hashiva, excuse me, you have this when you look down from an airplane. You know, kids are innocent and sweet, and they still say this. We've been, become callous and hardened and it doesn't impress us anymore. We're just annoyed because they ran out of the blue chips. You know, we're just annoyed because the Wi-Fi isn't working. So we fail to look out the window and say, wow, I'm flying through the sky right now at incredible speeds. It's, incre it's insane. But if you fly in a plane and you look out the window, the minuscule buildings and structures look like children's playthings. People think the smallness is an illusion. Oh, look from up here, it looks so small. So which is the real size of the building and which is the illusion? So we tend to think that the skyscraper is really huge. That's accurate. And when it looks tiny and like a toy from up there, that's just an illusion. But the opposite's true. On this world, things seem so big and so important and so grand, and it's an illusion. The real scale of it is from the perspective from up there. It's small and insignificant and inconsequential, and Hashem is really is really in charge. Says of Shal Alter, says the Ger Rosh Hashiva Shlita, that's Hashem's message. That's Hashem's message. I'm about to give you the Torah. And before I do, I want to lift you on the wings of an eagle and I want to bring you close to me. I want you to see from the perspective that Alexander the Great saw, but he got it wrong. He came to the wrong conclusion. I want you to get to the right conclusion. I'm bringing you on the wings of eagles. I want to bring you up to me. I'm giving you the tools to see the world with perspective. Hashem showed us the reality. He gave us scope. Unlike modern-day billionaires and Alexander the Great, he's showing us that with Torah, with Torah, Torah is the instrument to measure and to realize that what feels so big from down here is really very small. And really what's small is very big. And it's only from up there, from that perspective, that we can have scale and scope. It's so easy to get caught up in whatever we're doing and going through to magnify its significance and its meaning but from Kanfei Nisharim, from up high in the eagle's perspective, we can look down. Torah gives us a 30,000-foot view. Too often we get caught in the weeds. You need something to lift you and look down from 30,000 feet. Let's put this in perspective. Let's give this some scope. Let's give this some scale. And you get anxious when you feel self-pity or you're tempted to complain. On a scale of 1 to 10, does this really matter? 
or put differently, apply the five by five rule. You know what the five by five rule is? You ever hear the five by five rule? It's not my own. Five by five rule is you shouldn't spend more than five minutes worrying about something that won't matter in five years. If it won't matter in five years, spend five minutes. It's annoying what happens. Spend five minutes being annoyed by it. But if it won't matter in five years, don't spend more than five minutes. Don't spend more than five minutes. Climb aboard the wings of the airline called Torah. Torah is an airline. Torah is a space shuttle. We don't need Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Bezos. We don't need to build a spaceship to reach the heavens. We have Torah. Torah takes us up there, and from there we can look down, and it gives us scale, and it gives us perspective, and it gives us scope, and it gives us the ability to see things the way they are, the way they should be, the way we're meant to see them and understand them. Okay, Perak Yud Tes Pasuk Yud. Yud Tes Yud. So now that Hashem introduces Kabbalah Satorah with that ride up to the heavens and says this Torah is going to be your instrument, your dashboard to see the world with scale and scope, now he's ready to give us the Torah. So Hashem says, but before I can give you the Torah, What is Sanctify today and tomorrow and wash their clothing and let them be prepared for the third day. We recognize these three days on our calendar. They're known as Shloshis Yemei Hagbala. These are the three days of preparation. The three days of preparation. Shloshis Yemei Hagbala, before Shavuos, before we re-experience Kabbalah Satora. That word, the Kidashtam, is very significant. Listen to this insight by Rav Soloveitchik. The Rav says, Unkulish translates this word. What is the Kidashtam? Unkulish writes, what does utizaminun mean? Unklish translates the word utizaminun means prepare. The kidashtem, sanctify means, according to Unklus, prepare. Holiness means preparation. Holiness is not a transcendental phenomenon which arrives against man's will. Man does not bear the yoke of holiness if he does not want it. Man must choose it, wait for it, yearn for it. Only then does holiness descend slowly and cleave to us. In the three-day prelude to receiving the Torah, Moshe warns the people, be ready for three days. Similarly, Aaron had to submit to a seven-day preparation period prior to the dedication of the Mishkan. Every coin Gadol subsequently went through a similar sequester prior to Yom Kippur. What is the analogy between Aaron's preparation prior to the Mishkan's dedication of Yom Kippur? both involved in an encounter with holiness. Holiness does not arrive suddenly. It comes only by invitation inherent in the act of preparation. What an important message of the Rav. Holiness, holiness, Kedusha, doesn't come because you had an edible. Kedusha, holiness doesn't come because of a l'chaim. Holiness doesn't come because of something you smoked or imbibed. Holiness doesn't come out of nowhere, spontaneously, Holiness comes, Ein Kedusha Bali Hachana, which is not a Maimar Chazal, doesn't appear anywhere in Chazal, but Ein Kedusha Bali Hachana. There is no holiness without preparation. Where does that principle come from? Our Parsha. Vikidashtem, Hayom Umachar, and then Vayom Ashlishi. Vikidashtem, how do you make holy? Says Unklos, Vitazminun. You have to prepare. You have to prepare. Holiness takes work, it takes preparation. 
your mindset, your attitude, your effort, your sacrifice, your mesiris nefesh. It doesn't happen to you passively. If I had a dollar for everyone who says, Rabbi, I come to shul, I want to be inspired, but nothing happens. Your sermon, the chazan, the minion, the people, I don't get anything out of it. I say, you don't get anything out of it. Interesting. What are you putting into it? If you want to get something out of it, what are you putting into it? Now, it could be that you put everything into it and you still get nothing out of it because the rabbi is terrible, the chazan is terrible, the minion is terrible. It could be. I'm not saying that there aren't things that we have to fix. The things we have to fix. But before you get to what you need to fix in everyone around you, do we look in the mirror and say, what do I need to fix in me? If I'm not getting anything out of it, what am I putting into it? V'kidashtem. Are we preparing? Are we working? Are we ready? Are we making an effort? V'kidashtem. Ein kedusha baliachana. You're not going to be enriched by the Holy Shabbos and by Yantif and by Davening and by all of the 613 invitations for encountering Kedusha that we have called Torah. We're not going to be elevated and rich and transformed by them if we're not first v'kidashtem. Ein kedusha baliachana. It's not going to land in your lap passively. It doesn't happen to you. You have to invite Kedusha. You have to be a clear vessel to receive and experience Kedusha. If you want to get something out of it, you better put something into it. Parakut test, Pasuk test, Zayin. Turn the page, 404. There were sounds, and there was a thick mountain, on the, uh, there was a thick cloud on the mountain. And all the people trembled, and uh, tremendous pomp and circumstance. What a scene. Incredible what's going on. Tells us the following. What was the sound of the shofar? The Torah was the shofar of the ram of Yitzchak. Rashi writes similarly. The shofar from the ram of Akedas Yitzchak was the sound of the shofar that blew at Harsinai. There's some deep meaning in that, which we're not going to go into right now. The Sefer Kesar Shem Tov, the Kesar Shem Tov writes, which is the Torah of the Helega Bashem Tov. Kesar Shem Tov, the Torah of the Helega Bashem, quotes in the Bashem Tov, Shim Zochem Yisrael Umetarim Mekachim Atzma Torasov Mitzvosov. We said, En Kedusha Beliyachana. So if the Jewish people follow the formula of Harsinai, we spend time, we prepare, and we invest, we make ourselves into a vessel that could receive Kedusha. We can still hear those sounds reverberating. We can see, we can hear Hashem sounds all around us. All around us. He testified about the Bashem. He testified about the Bashem when he would teach Torah that in fact the angels came down, the same lightning and thunder, you could hear the sounds of Hashem and you heard the declaration of Anochi Hashem Elokecha. Those sounds never stopped, they continued to reverberate. When we read this parsha, my dear friends, we're not reading about an event of history. We are experiencing it in an ongoing fashion. Those sounds continue to reverberate in our ears. Maimed Arsinai never ended. It continues. It continues. 
Hashem is still talking to us every time you open a Sefer, every time you open a Chumash, every time you attend the Parsha Shir, you're standing at Har Sinai. You're hearing Hashem continue to talk to us. That is the secret of our continuity. That is the secret of our existence, is that we are not simply commemorating or reading or studying history. This is not memory only. This is ongoing and it's live and it's real. You know, Soloveitchik writes, he remembers when he was in his bed as a child, in his crib as a child. He remembers. He would overhear his father learning, the great Moshe Soloveitchik, maybe with his grandfather, Chaim. And they would, the Ravid would, would level an accusation, a question on the Rambam. He would lie in bed and he was on the edge of his bed. He couldn't fall asleep. What's the Rambam going to do? The Ravid's attacking him. And then he would hear his father and his grandfather coming up with a creative solution to defend the Rambam against the Ravid. These were not figures of history. These were not personalities of the past. He couldn't fall asleep as a child because the Rambam was alive. The Ravid was alive and they were sparring and he needed to know how it was going to end, how it was going to turn out. Would the Rambam be defended? Would he be okay? And then later the, the Rav described that when he was frail and he was old and his health was compromised and he was tired, but he'd walk into Shir and he'd open the Svarim and it gave him the energy. He'd come alive for those few hours. He didn't give a short shear. It was many hours. I wish I had the text here. I could read it to you. You have to hear the Rav in his own words describing it. And for the Rav, these people were alive. They were alive. Ravina, Ravashi, Rishlakish, Rabbi Yochan, the Rambam, the Ravid, Rukiva Eger. They weren't people of the past. They were alive. I was once at a rabbinic retreat and I had the uh, distinct privilege a session where I was interviewing Rav Shechter in conversation with Rav Shechter for the group of Rabbanim. And I asked him, Mori Rabbi Rav Shechter, I said, you know, the rabbinate, they say, can be lonely. It's lonely sometimes. Does Rebbe, does the Rosh Hashiva ever get lonely? Ever get lonely? People don't understand and the pressures and responsibility and the unfair criticism, misunderstanding. Does Rebbe ever get lonely? He looked at me and if you know Rav Shechter, there's not a pretentious bone in his body or an inauthentic he never would say anything because he thinks that's what's supposed to be said. He looked at me and he said, like shockingly, totally not understanding what I was talking about. He said, why Why would I ever get lonely? I have the Ritva and the Rashba and Rabbi Kiveger and the Chassam Sofer. Do you know how many friends I have? I have the Rambam and the Ravid. I have I have, I have Beishamah and Beis Hillel. I have so many friends, I can't count them all. Why would I ever be lonely? He didn't say that because he wanted me to quote it later in the Parsha Shir years later. Or someone would one day put it in a book. He meant it. He sits down with his forum. He sits with his bookcase. He opens his Gemara. And Rashi and Tess is among his friends. He's not lonely. They're alive. They're alive. And that was the experience the Baal Shem Tov said. Kesa Shem Tov. It says the Kolos Uvrachim are Bekol Dor. They're in each and every generation. They never stop reverberating. They go on and on and on and on. They continue to reverberate all around us. How long was Harsinai? How long did they stay there? Anyone know how long they stayed there? Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says something shocking. You know how long Harsinai lasted? How long did it last? An hour? A day? A week? A month? A year? A decade? Anyone know? We studied the Parsha a lot. Celebrate Shavuos many times. Anybody know how long Har Sinai was? Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, Shana Achas. That's what it says, Asher Hu Sham, 
שעדיין חונה שם בהר האלוקים, a year. They encamped and they were there and they waited and the experience was a year. And Rabbeinu B'chai adds in Parshat Kisetzei, on the Pasuk, Naki Yiyeh Lebeso Shana Achas, the notion of Shana Rishona, when a couple get married, that they experience Shana Rishona. Nights later at home this first year. Don't separate and go on business trips that first year. We still continue to treat them as a king and a queen that first year. Where does that come from? It's a Pasuk, Naki Yiyeh Lebeso Shana Achas. Parshas Kisetzei, Rabbeinu B'chai says, you know where that comes from? Hashem married us under the mountain that He held over our head like a chuppah, and just like He spent a Shana Rishona with us, we too should spend a Shana Rishona. And in fact, we don't have time now, all the customs that we have surrounding marriage are modeled after Kabbalah Satorah, Matan Torah. The chuppah is like the mountain held over our head. And Shana Rishona is like Shana Rishona. And many, many other of the customs that we have are modeled after this. Moshe came down from the mountain. Did Moshe bench Gomel? The Chidah, and the Sefer Machazik Bracha. This is all in Osir Plaus HaTorah. The Chidah wonders. When Moshe came down, you came back from your cruise on Yeshiva week, you benched Gomel. You came back from the Bahamas on your flight, you benched Gomel. You think Moshe came down from 40 days, 40 nights on a mountain, nothing to eat, nothing to drink, encountered the Almighty. You don't think he benched Gomel? Did he bench Gomel? So the Lo Birch Birch Zagomel Kashir Minahar Kivan Shaafim Hu Meis Hayazah Apit Sivo Yashem. And he quotes a machlokas and a debate and a conversation. Did he bench Gomel? Did he not bench Gomel? Did he make a Birch Torah? He was the first to learn Torah. He received the Torah. You can't learn Torah without making a Birch Torah. What bracha did he make though? Because Asher Bachabanu Menasal Lanu Es Torasau. Did it happen yet? Did it fully happen yet? Is that the bracha he made? So he quotes here. The Medrash Rabbah says, he made a bracha. Amr Rebbe Lazar, Ezo Yabracha Shebirach Moshe B'Torah Tchila, Baracha Ta'ashem Lokin Melech Olam, Asher Bachar B'Torah Hazos, V'Kidsha V'Ratza Ba'oseha. Kodesh Baruch Hu chose this Torah, he sanctified it, and he wants those who keep it. And the Machsar Vitri says, all year long we don't make that Birchas HaTorah. We say, Asher Bachar Baruch Mikol Amim, and so on and so forth. But Bechaga Shavua Saolul Torah Mavarecha Bracha Kinusachanal Shabirach Moshe Rabbeinu. We don't do that. That's not our custom. But the Machzavitri quotes a custom that when you get an Aliyah on Shavuos, the Birchas Torah on Shavuos, you revert to the Birchas Torah that Moshe made. He has pages and pages and pages more on that here, and much more that he talks about. I guess I'll end with a couple questions for you to take with you. One. Torah was given in Shivim Lashem. Why would it be given in Shivim Lashem? They all spoke one. By the way, there's a there's one tradition. He quotes in Etzah Plas Torah. What language was Har Sinai? God spoke to us directly. Moshe continued and gave us the rest of the Dibros. What language? For sure it was Yiddish. No. <laughs> was not Yiddish. What language was it? Some say it was Egyptian. They all spoke Egyptian. They were a slave nation. They just came out of Egypt. Maybe it was Lashon HaKodesh. What language were the Dibros given in? But the measure tells us it was simultaneous, simultaneously broadcast in 70 languages. Why would you need that? This wasn't the United Nations, Baruch Hashem. This was not an ingathering of people from all over. This was not a conference. They all came from the same place. They all spoke the same language. 
Why would it need to be given in 70 languages? I'll leave that as a question. One of the Dibros, Lo Sase Lecha, you're not allowed to make a foreign god. It could just say Lo Sase, don't make. Why does it say Lecha for you? Two questions for you to chew on. Tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of Mesir Sasharim, followed by Living with Amuna tomorrow night behind the Bima with Mort Klein, the president of the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America. Tonight, we have the privilege of hosting Rav Meir Salavichik. I don't even know if there's room left because I think 700 people have signed up for this registration. The great Rabbi Meir Salavichik, my good friend, is speaking tonight, partnering with Tikva. Next week, you don't want to miss it and you need to reserve. Go to birasonline.org slash anti-Semitism. Next week, we're hosting a conversation, a debate between Ben Shapiro and Yair Rosenberg. Ben Shapiro, you know Yair Rosenberg, a writer for The Atlantic. The ADL named them the two most targeted Jews online for anti-Semitism. But they come from anti-Semitism from very different perspectives. I'll be moderating a conversation, a debate between the two of them about anti-Semitism. You'll want to be here. It's next week. You have to register. brsonline.org slash anti-Semitism, or you can uh, find it in the weekly or online. Please join us for that event. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. <laughs>